So my name is Josh Crawford. I, uh, I'm a member of Tate's Creek, and uh, I work with a college ministry called Campus Outreach that a lot of you have heard about. And uh, my wife, Tara, and I, we live in Richmond, and uh, we work at EKU, and we're in the process of planting another church uh, in Richmond. So y'all can be praying for us in that. Um, so I'm really glad to be here with you. Uh, we haven't been here in three or four years, um, so it's good to be back and to, uh, to see the church now, uh, even compared to what it was a few years ago. Um, so for tonight, or this evening, we're going to be uh, looking at Luke chapter 8. So I guess it's up on the screen, or if you have your Bibles or phones, you can go there. Um, it's funny, you know, because we're in the last Sunday of October, uh, we're looking forward to Halloween coming up soon. It's the spooky time of the year. And uh, there's a lot of like spirituality that becomes normal uh, in our culture around this time. And uh, everything gets a little bit freaky, you know, with, with spirits and demons and such, um, especially with what we watch, what we read, but especially with what we watch. Um, movies like The Shining, The Witch, Hereditary, The Exorcist, The Ring, the Conjuring, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, I hate all those kind of movies. Um, haven't watched any since I was like 14 years old. But I've read about them, you know. Um, but all of those movies, they capture our imaginations and they bring some absolute terror, horror, uh, and enable us from being able to sleep well at night, uh, at least for 30-year-old grown men like me. Um, but out of these movies, all of them include a keen sense of evil, right? Think The Shining. All of them include an invasion of some sort from the outside world into this world, or a house, or even a person. So think something like The Ring. And they also include a distortion of humanity where someone or something is made less than human, but not inhuman. So think hereditary. Uh, yeah, I just saw the trailer for that one, and I was, I was done. It was bad. Um, but altogether, the evil, the invasion, the distortion, it impresses us, I think, with its power, that it can't be overcome, and its mystery, that we really don't know exactly what this thing is. Um, and this is what freaks us out, the power and the mystery of it. Um, so... We end up in Luke chapter 8, and we have all of this wrapped up into one historical story found in this book that Luke wrote about the life of Jesus. So read along with me, Luke 8, 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him. He said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. 
but he would break the bonds and, and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So, basically, for those of you that like the structure of it, uh, I'm going to talk about two different things. The power and the mission. The power of, I'm calling this the unshackled God and the mission of the unshackled God. Um, so just to kind of set the context, just because we're jumping in out of nowhere into Luke 8, Luke 6 is a really famous chapter. Uh, it's the Beatitudes, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says crazy things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He says crazy things like, love your enemies, do, do good to those who hate you, who revile you. Uh, Luke 7, Jesus heals a general servant, and then Jesus raises a widow's son, and then Jesus forgives a sinful woman. Um, So up till chapter 8, Jesus is doing some pretty miraculous stuff. Then we get to Luke chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus, or uh, Luke writes this, soon afterward, he went, Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So you can see from the context, Luke chapter 8, Luke sets up the chapter to show that Jesus is going from city to city to different villages And he's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being where Jesus makes right what has been broken by sin and evil. And we also see that he has a crew with him. He's not by himself. He has his disciples, but it's not just the the super disciples, the apostles, like the people who have all this authority, but it's also a group of women. And in that group, includes Mary Magdalene, who we've heard a lot about, but he specifically says here that Mary had been freed from seven demons herself. So he sets up the story that we read in the, at the end of Luke 8. And then, just the story right before is when Jesus calms the storm. 
on the sea. So Jesus and his disciples are crossing the lake, and this huge storm arises. All the disciples who are fishermen who would have known, you know, how to get through storms like that, they're freaking out. They wake up Jesus. He's asleep. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, we need your help. And with his word, Jesus says, be still. And the wind ceases, the storm stops, and the water becomes still as glass. And they say, verse 25, and they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So, what we find in in Jesus doing this with this demonic possessed man is a connection between that and what he did on the ocean, on the sea. At the sea, we see Jesus is able to calm the storm, calm water, calm the physical cosmos, the physical realm. In this story, we see that Jesus is able to do that with the spiritual realm. The demons possessing this man beg Jesus in verse 28 and verse 31, and they must obey his commandments. So it's a little bit weird, right, in our context to be talking about demons, to be talking about people who are possessed, unless we're watching one of those crazy movies. Um, but uh, that's pretty unique for our, for our world, uh, but also for our time. Uh, for most of history, we've been able to read this story, start talking about it with, without any clarification, without any apologetic for saying, There's a spiritual realm, right? But the Bible assumes that this world that we live in, this universe that we live in, is not a closed system. It assumes that it is an open system, that everything is not just a natural reality, but there is also a spiritual reality that overlaps the natural reality. As well... The Bible also has separate categories for demonic possession and what we would consider modern understandings of mental health, of epilepsy. So some people have tried to critique the Bible saying, well, they just didn't know at that time the things that we know now about the physical brain um, and the physical body. But the reality is, you can look at the Bible and see that there are separate categories even 2,000 years ago for those physical things and what we're seeing here with demonic possession. But even though the Bible has a supernatural understanding of existence, um, it goes further than just seeing those, uh, the existence of both a physical realm and a spiritual realm. It sees the two realms constantly overlapping. So it's not like there's a spiritual reality and a physical reality. The Bible sees those two realities as always overlapping. Think something like crocheting, you know, the idea of crocheting or knitting, where they're weaving in and out uh, the thread. That's the way the Bible understands the universe. It is a weaving of threads of a physical reality and a spiritual reality. So, 
with that in mind, this is where things start to get pretty scary with Jesus. And that's what I want you to see. Jesus has already shown in the previous story that the physical world obeys him at his very word in calming a storm. He says one thing, be still, and everything stops. But he has to prove something else. Because in this open system that the Bible assumes, the demons can control at least some aspect of the physical world too. Look at verse 29 again. For many a time it, the demon, had seized him, the man. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. You see, the evil spirits are powerful enough to seize the body and the mind of a physical human being, and they are stronger than chains and shackles and any other strong metal in creation. But I want you to notice, if you have uh, a few different versions, but if you have an ESV, that that verse is in parentheses. It's in parentheses because it's not the main point of the passage. Now, I think you can see where I'm going with this. When we think about the calming of the storm, we don't think about, about the power of the storm. As powerful as that storm must have been to freak a bunch of uh, lifelong fishermen out, we think about the power of Jesus to say a word and calm it. Now, in this story, this extraordinary story, when we think about the exorcism of thousands of demons, a legion is a thousand demons or more. We shouldn't think about how much power thousands of demons possess. And they must have a lot. We should shudder at the power of Jesus. Verse 37 Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. We're not supposed to be wowed by the power of the demons. We're supposed to shudder at the power of Jesus. Jesus simply has enough power in his very word that all the legions, thousands of fallen angels must obey him. Winds and waves, demons, all falling at the word of Jesus, we have to ask with the disciples, who then is this? The demons knew it. They say in verse 28, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, the Eternal One, the One with all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus, the Son of the Most High, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God, according to John 1. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. Isaiah saw him, Jesus, high and lifted up and seated on the throne, and around him were cherubim and seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus. He is God of God. He is light of light. He is very God of very God. Not made, but begotten as the only Son of the Father, equal in glory and power 
and honor. Who then is this? Jesus, the Son of the Most High. The man also knew this. Look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. You can't be with me. You have to go back to the city and tell everyone everything that God has done for you. And then it says, then he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see, this man who had just been freed by Jesus already had some pretty good theology. He understood that Jesus wasn't just a man. He was the son of the most high God. He was God of God in light of light, very God of very God, so much so that when Jesus told him, go and tell them how much God has done for you, he went and said, Jesus did this for me. That is who we're talking about in the Bible. That's who we're talking about in this story. But my question for you is, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what then is this man? Who then is this man? Do you know that? And I hope that the Spirit, by His Word, can reawaken a fear and awe in us at the person of Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Because this Jesus that I'm speaking of in this story that happened 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus that is alive and well today. He has the same power, the same capabilities today. He is still with us today. And he continues to do the same work of freeing those who are shackled today. Jesus has never ceased doing this. And this is where our Christianity has to come into the present. We can't just see our Christianity as 2,000 years ago, and we can't just see our Christianity as sometime in the distant future. This is where we see the present reality of our Savior. He is the unshackled God. There is absolutely nothing capable of binding Him. That is made clear in the text. Time, matter, space, demons, nothing can escape His authority, much less bind Him. He is ruler of heaven and earth, transcending both space and time. Meaning that the reality that Luke is saying here is true right now. It's true today in our world. It's true today in this congregation. It's true today in our lives. Jesus is still the Son of the Most High God, full of this fearful power. But my fear for myself and for us is that oftentimes we really don't believe that. And we don't really believe this story is for us because we've forgotten the power and the mystery of the Son of God. We have domesticated Jesus. We have made Him in our own image. We see this by paintings. 
We see this by our writings. We see this in white Jesus that's made in the image of white people. We see this in black Jesus made in the image of black people. We see this in conservative uh, American patriotic Jesus made in the image of, you know, a a gun-toting American flag flying man. And we see this on the other side as well. We make Jesus in our own image. And what happens is that we free Jesus from all of his power. Jesus then possesses the same power that I possess. And any want of freedom from what oppresses us hinges on my power when Jesus is made in my image. But also we figured out Jesus, taking away his mystery. We figured him out with our doctrine of God. You know, we're Presbyterians. We have great doctrine. We have our dogmatics. We know the characteristics of God. We know the right answers to all the Jesus questions. And therefore, there is no mystery. He fits well into all my theological boxes. And so there is no longer mystery. We no longer ask the question because we already know. Who then is this? So, without knowing it, we've become like the people of the city who went out to see what happened. And we've seen indirectly what Jesus can do, and it freaks us out. So we've asked the real Jesus to leave. Not knowing that what Jesus has done for the demon-possessed man, he can do for us too. Do you see yourself in this story as this man? Because you should. The word of God is very clear. Evil is all around you. Evil has been done to you, and you have done lots of evil. This is an open system, and spiritual and physical overlap at every atom. So, when we consider evil, what is around us, what has been done to us, what we've done, we may not think, well, I'm, I'm possessed. I'm not possessed like this man. I'm not having to be shackled. But because the Bible sees a constant overlap of the physical and the spiritual, we never have to go to the fringes of the physical, nor do we have to go to the fringes of the spiritual. Because we can always say that they overlap. And so in some way, everything that's done to me physically also has a spiritual component to it. Every sin that has been done against me also has an evil component. And that may be manifested in some way in a demon, or that may just be the evil system in which we live. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point is that the physical and the spiritual overlap at every atom. And I fear that even... You know, I really like hip-hop music. Um, I fear that some, some hip-hop artists have better 
understandings of this overlap than some of us in the church do. Uh, Mac Miller, you know, he, he wrote the song 2009. Uh, he said something like this, Sometimes I wish I took a simpler route instead of having demons that are as big as my house. And then he soon after committed suicide. And we can listen to a lot of music, we can see a lot of shows, and we can see a lot of overlap between the physical and this spiritual reality. But look at the demon-possessed man. He embodies a reality of, of, of a union of two realities, the spiritual and physical into one. He is a man who is both a human but also possessed, a person but also out of control. He has been robbed of signs of his humanity. He has no clothing. He has no community. He has no housing. Even life itself, he ends up in, uh, in the graveyard. He was driven far out of community to where there was no life, the desert. And eventually he was not living in a house, but he was living among the tombs, as in verse 27. So our abuse, our neglect, our abandonment, our physical illness, our relationships, our addictions, our distorted longings, our mental illnesses, our temptations, our sin patterns, the list is long of what takes away the wholeness of our humanity. And what I'm saying is that every part of those overlaps between physical and spiritual. We are a shackled people. We are desperate. We desperately need to be freed by one who is unshackled. We are the demoniac in this story. Desperate to be freed. And there is only one who can do that. There is only one who can save. And this unshackled God has done just that. We read from Psalm 57, I cry out to God most high. Uses the same term that the demon gives to Jesus. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven. This has to come from outside the physical where sin and Satan has laid waste the created good of God. It has to come from outside. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Some of you need to hear this side of the gospel. The gospel is not just that Jesus has died for the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel is also that Jesus died on the cross to conquer your enemy. Jesus has conquered your enemy upon the cross. And the language of the crucifixion is a beautiful but difficult parallel to what we see here. Jesus was seized himself the same way that 
this man was seized. He was taken, he was bound, he, could, he was not free, he was full of fear so that he could go to the cross and die in order to bring victory to you. Jesus is our victor. Colossians 1 says this, This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the demons. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Jesus has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. And since it's Reformation Sunday... I'll read this verse uh, from A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. What I'm saying to you, what the Bible is saying to you, what the gospel says to you, is that God knows that you have been shackled. God knows that there are things in your life that bind you. God knows that there are things in your life that you are addicted to. God knows that you have reoccurring sin that you've had for decades. God knows all of that. And what the gospel says is that Jesus triumphs over all of it. Jesus is your victor, and he sets you free by his power. His power is much greater than your little sin. Satan has to set you free at one word of Jesus. Do not domesticate Jesus anymore. Do not, do, not, um, do not limit his power anymore based on your power. We all should tremble at this Jesus. He is a fearful, awesome God. You know, when, uh, when men went off to, to war in World War II, they saw some of the most horrific, dangerous, fearful things imaginable to humans. When they came back, the big knock on them was that they were so stoic. They, nothing moved them anymore. Nothing could excite them and nothing could make them fearful anymore. Because when you see something really fearful, the most fearful thing in existence, nothing else really excites you anymore. Nothing else makes you afraid anymore. And that's where this passage goes. And that's where where I'll end with the mission. See, in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him.
You see, this man had experienced the most fearful power in all of existence. And there was nothing that he was afraid of now. The people who had, who had put him in shackles throughout his life, the people who had bound him, the people who had re- rejected him, left him alone, there was nothing for him to fear. And this is where the people of God start to get scary. We start to get scary when we realize that there is nothing left for us to fear because we have encountered the most fearful being in all of existence, namely our God. And so Satan no longer is fearful for us. We're not afraid of the mission that God has given us to go as sheep among wolves. We're not afraid to go into the hardest places of our city where people like the demoniac are who could hurt us, who are dangerous, who might hurt our bodies, who might hurt us emotionally, who might traumatize us. We're not fearful anymore because we've already experienced the most fearful being in all of existence. But not only that, we also have this promise that Jesus goes with us on the mission. Look at verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. You know, Luke is very, you know, he's the doctor. He's very precise. He uses his words really well. And he adds this really uh, important detail. Because when Jesus steps out onto the land, there met him this demon-possessed man. This has always been the mission of God. That he is constantly going to parts of his creation where Satan rules so that he can bring the kingdom of God, so he can set everything right, so he can save his people, so he can conquer Satan, so he can push back evil. That's always been Jesus' mission. And that's what he was doing here. Jesus, you know, people are really like commentators and people who study where this place is, Gerasenes, are really confused at why Jesus ended up going there because it doesn't make any sense. But it makes a lot of theological sense because this land that it's talking about is a land outside of the people of God. It's a land where pigs are, right? Jews didn't do pigs. They didn't eat pigs, no bacon, all that. This is a people in a land outside of the rule of God, and Jesus goes there strategically and on purpose, and he steps out on the land in order to meet Satan. The same thing that happens after his baptism. When he's baptized, and then it says, Luke says that the Spirit drove him out into the desert to meet Satan. That is the mission of Jesus. And that is the mission that he still does today. Just like I said earlier, it's not 2,000 years in the past, it's not in some unforeseen time in the future. This is a reality right now. 
Jesus still exists on the front lines of the kingdom of God going forward into the kingdom of Satan. So my encouragement to you is this, church. There is a city, Lexington, Kentucky, where God has sent you, where Jesus is, on the front lines, advancing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan. And that's where you will meet your Jesus. That's where he is. He's not leaving that place. So when the man goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, can I stay with you? He begs him, Jesus, please let me stay with you. He says, no, uh, you have to go tell everybody about what God has done for you. We know that Jesus actually never left him because he's given him the power of the Spirit. That's what he promises his disciples a few months later. I'm leaving you, but I will actually never leave you because I'm going to give you my Spirit and I will be with you. Leslie Newbegin says it this way, The one who has been called and loved by the Lord, the one who wishes to love and serve the Lord, will want to be where he is. And where he is, is on that frontier which runs between the kingdom of God and the usurped power of the evil one. When Jesus sent out his disciples on his mission, he showed them his hands and his side. They will share in his mission as they share in his passion. And they follow him in the challenging and unmasking the powers of evil. There is no other way to be with Jesus. At the heart of mission is simply the desire to be with him and to give him the service of our lives. My encouragement to you, church, is this. Since Jesus has set you free from the tyranny of the devil, you don't have anything to fear anymore. He has now sent you to go find the people that are shackled the way that this demon-possessed man is. People who may not have clothes, who may not have food, who, who are inhumane, people who are difficult, people who are addicted, people who are bound, people who are poor, people who have been stripped of every earthly possession, who have been broken to the point where you look at them and you have to question if they are made in the image of God because they've been so distorted. That's where Jesus is. And I'll finish with Luther's fourth verse. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you set us free. Your word says that or you said, Lord, that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Lord, I pray that we would believe in the power that you possess to make us free. I pray, Lord, that you would free us from addictions. I pray that you would free us from um, oppressions of things that have been done to us. 
I pray that you would free us from shame and guilt for things that we've done. I pray, Lord, that you would bring freedom to us and make us whole again. Lord, we are desperate for you. If you do not come and save us, we have no hope. And so, Lord, we ask that you would once again keep us, free us, hold us, and send us, Lord, to our city uh, who is in need of your freedom. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.